welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And we are back. We're talking about Howl's Moving Castle, which is a fun pick and a weird pick, I feel. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I feel like it was a bit of a departure for us. And I don't know why I feel that way, because it's, you know, a little bit like Enchanted, which we've done. It's a little Mm -hmm. bit like that one with the cities on legs that we did. Right. The mortal. Some kind of mortal. (laughs) (laughs) I want to say instruments. I know it's It's not that one. It's the other one. Mortal engines. That's the one. And yeah, I don't know. I, I really liked the book, but it moved a lot slower than I was expecting. Agreed. Yes. And I have to confess, like, this is a week where I feel a little bit dopey because uh, I think I said this when we did, oh my gosh, Joe, am Are I going to say awake? Orange Marmalade? Is that the problem? No, Orange Marmalade was fine. It was when we did per- uh, Persepolis. Okay. I, I, I do. I feel like a complete dope every time I have to admit this, but I really genuinely struggle with subtitles. Oh, really? Okay. And I don't mean it in like... I don't want to read a movie. Although I do sometimes say that to my husband when he suggests a, suggests a subtitle movie. But I find it really difficult to attend to both registers at once. Like I will find that I am just reading the screen for like long stretches of time and I haven't actually paid attention to the visuals like at all. Okay. And I think maybe why I like comic books so much is because I have time to do both. Like right. I can exist in both registers and I can take as much time as I need to. Um, mm. So yeah, I don't know. It's something that I've always felt really sheepish about. Because I love foreign films. I love French-Canadian cinema. My French is not quite strong enough to not have subtitles on. Right. And, you know, I've taken, like, I took film studies in graduate school. Like, I've watched important (laughs) subtitly movies. But I just, I really, it's a real cognitive challenge for me. And so if I'm already tired, it's an extra cognitive challenge for me. Well, to be honest, I mean, I don't think you're alone in this struggle. I think a lot of people also feel like if they fall out of practice with it, like they're, they're not regularly watching films mm-hmm. with subtitles, it's, it can be difficult to get back into it. That's true. Now, listeners, this is a good point to make at this junction, which is that there are two different versions of Howl's Moving Castle, the film, which mm-hmm. is a Japanese animated film. And I deliberately did not even give Brenna the option of a dubbed (laughs) American voiceover. So I did just basically say, hey, we're going to watch the Japanese version. Here's the subtitles. No, you don't get to listen to Christian Bale. Sorry. And honestly, I think that was the right call because I think that the tone of the film shifts when you add dubbing. And I do Mm -hmm. get that. Yeah, anyway, it's just something I've been thinking about because it's, you know, it's something we sort of associate with the uncultured, an inability to, to attend to subtitles effectively. So maybe if you're listening and you feel the same way I do and a little bit sheepish about admitting it, I think sometimes there are just modes of content that are more or less attuned to your cognitive structure. And for yeah. me, subtitles are a real struggle. And that's fine. I don't know that you need to feel sheepish about it, as long as you're not saying, I absolutely refuse to watch films with this because I can't do it. Yeah, no, no, I, I soldier on, although I will say, like, it, this is a two-hour movie with subtitles. It's, I shouldn't have tried to do it in one sitting. It was my mistake, but, like, I was definitely dozing because I'm just, like, I'm working so hard, and then I'm just, like, my brain's like, we need a break. <laughs> like, I come back in, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm good to go. <laughs> Yeah, and we can talk, I mean, we'll talk about all this when we get to the film. I feel like this is the episode where we get mail about, like, how we need to replace Brenna with a host who knows something. But I also don't actually love the animation style of this film. Oh, which wow. I know everybody's like, oh my god, Howl's Moving Castle is so beautiful. And I'm like, but is it? So- okay, park that. We will okay. get to that. But yes, now I think we're going to get some mail. So. Uh, maybe before we get too far into that, do you have any homework that you would like to share? I do, and I'm excited okay. about it. I would like to share that we got a new review this week on Apple Podcasts. Oh, nice. Okay, mm-hmm. that's always refreshing. I know. It's from fantastic screen name, Reader Mommy 2. <laughs> I love it. Where's Reader Mommy 1? Seriously. From the US, which is always exciting. And it's a lovely five-star review um, that says that they find the show intelligent, fun, and interesting, and great for all adults, young and old, which I really appreciated. And so because I am deeply narcissistic and vain, I do have an alert set up, so... <laughs> 
I get an email when we get a review on any platform. And so I thought since one had just come through this week, it was a good time to remind folks that you can always leave a rating and review for us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help folks find the show and it's just always a nice little boost for us when we see it. Um, And most of the podcatchers deliver content to new listeners based on reviews and ratings. So um, if you like the show and you want to help people find it, we'd love it if you would rate us and review us on, I'm going to say Apple Podcasts because that is where most of our listeners are coming from, but any podcatcher of your choice would be uh, a generous act on your part. So thank you to Reader Mommy 2 for reminding me that I don't think I had asked people to go and rate and review us in probably several months. (laughs) This is entirely true, and I have also not done that, so kudos to everyone who has done that of their own volition. Yeah. (laughs) It's a very kind thing to do for the podcast in your life. It's true. Yes. And I think people always like to hear that someone is out there listening and enjoying or I mean, obviously, people have written in and said, hey, maybe try to do this a little bit better. And that's also appreciated. We honestly just like to hear from people. It is nice to know people are listening. And it's why we troll the hashtag. And it's why we're so excited when people let us know that they've picked up a book we've talked about on the show or anything. It's just nice to know you're reaching people. So yeah, just thought I'd mention it off the top. Thanks, Reader Mommy, too, for reminding me. Aww. That's sweet. <laughs> okay, so I have one that's a potential conversation starter. Oh. But obviously, we'll have to gauge our time appropriately. So since we are now into November, of course, people have begun to drop their listicles of top tens for the year. Mm-hmm. We're actually, once again, recording this a little bit out of order and a little bit early. So at this moment in time, I have a top ten list by the time that this episode drops the winner quote-unquote, of this list will have already been announced. But what I'm talking about is the Yelsa Teens Top 10. And I'm not sure how popular this is. I was just doing a bit of searching to try to find something for homework, and I Mm -hmm. came across this. Mm -hmm. It is the Young Adult Library Services Association. And every year they encourage readers who are age 12 to 18 to vote for their favorite YA title of the year so they Mm -hmm. produce a short list and then from the short list they produce a top 10 and from the top 10 people are then encouraged to vote for their favorite of the year yeah readers might notice in their local libraries some libraries do up um pretty big displays with the yelsa picks and kind of make it a community thing as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so what i enjoyed was that there's a couple of books on this list that we have talked about a couple that I'd never heard of before. So I thought I might just run through the top 10 list. As I said, the top pick will have already been revealed by the time this episode drops, but I'm interested. (laughs) So the top 10 are as follows. Hashtag Murder Trending by Gretchen McNeil, which was a recommendation that Max gave to me a couple of weeks ago in an email. Yes, it's still such a good title. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Next one is Wild Card by Mary Lou. Mm-hmm. I don't know Which that one. I'd not heard of, but I know her as an author, and I quite enjoy her. Okay, good to know. She actually has a second in the top ten as well, which what? is Batman Nightwalker, which is, I think, akin to what Julie Murphy is going to be doing with Faith, which is that it's oh, a... okay, like a novelization? Yeah. The Cruel Prince by Holly Black. Oh, you know, Holly Black is huge in YA circles, and I have never read her. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe this will be the year. (laughs) Thunderhead by Neil Shusterman. Oh, I love Neil Shusterman. Did not know he had a new book out. Adding that to my list right now. There we go. Cool. This one you have definitely talked about before. It's Children of Blood and Bone by (gasps) Tomi Adeyemi. Yeah, because it's awesome. I think it's on our radar as a film that they've talked about. It's definitely been optioned. I don't think they've begun production on a film, but something's happening with that i really hope so and i think if i remember rightly some of the same people who were involved in black panther are involved in some of the production aspects which could be extremely interesting Mm. yeah that'd be great Mm -hmm. okay the prince and the dressmaker by jen wang oh i love jen wang she usually does comics i've not read that one um i think we've talked about Um, An adaptation that she did of a Cory Doctorow novel. It was one of the very first homework pieces I brought up like a million years ago. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. American Panda by Gloria Chow. 
Oh, I have read that one. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, it's it's super fun, super cute, sort of child of immigrants trying to assimilate without losing her culture kind of narrative. Um, and the parents are particularly well crafted, if I'm remembering correctly. It's a good mm. one. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the final two that runs at the top ten are both ones that you've talked about on the show before. And the first one is Speak, but it's the graphic novel. Right, yes. With uh, Emily Carroll, I believe, did the comic version, yes? That's correct. Yes, she's fantastic. And if you're not familiar with her work, she has some great web comics that you can just Google and take a look at. She's a fantastic person to illustrate that story. Her style is really kind of, uh, no, kind of gothy, for lack of a better word. Oh, interesting. Yeah, very dark style. Yeah, and that, that adaptation is fantastic. Okay, well, maybe you can talk about it a little bit more in a very near future episode. See, Joe, this is why I can never tell if we're telling people what we're talking about in advance or not. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is no. We make them listen all the way through, but we offer teases to keep them listening. Oh, was that a tease? That was a tease. It was very subtle. Right? (laughs) The final one on the top 10 is The Poet X by Elizabeth (gasps) Acevedo. Oh, I hope it wins. Which is unfair to all the books I haven't read yet, but The Poet X, well, y'all heard it when I read it. It's so awesome. Yeah. It's so very, very good. And I, and again, if we're talking about an award and we're thinking about who's actually moving the the category of YA forward, that's the book of the year, I would say. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, listeners, you'll... You'll hear this, and you can actually go and check to see if Brenna's hope and prediction have come true at this point. But <laughs> I'll try to make a note and see if I can follow up next week just to confirm. Sounds good. Thanks okay. for bringing that in. Mm-hmm. I love this time of year. We start to get lists, and you just find yourself going, wait, wait, when did they have a book out? I, what? Right. How did I miss that? <laughs> I thought I was in the loop. Am I out of the loop? I feel like from November to the end of December, it's just people who really think that they know about books, finding out how little they know about books. And it's one of those realities, right? There are more books in the world that you want to read than you will ever possibly read. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Sometimes I think about going back through our forecast episodes and realizing that I've maybe crossed one of them off the list from about a year ago. It's impressive. I know. It's that's why I find our homework or our homework recap episodes to be so daunting because it's just a consistent experience of what you fail to accomplish. Yeah. Ah, just uh, embrace the failure, Brenna. Whoop whoop. <laughs> okay, so why don't we turn our attention to Howl's Moving Castle? Oh wow. Yes. Let's talk about Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne Jones. So this book came out in nineteen eighty six and it won it won oh, really? awards at the old? time. Yeah, yeah. It's almost as old as us, Joe. <laughs> wow. Okay. For some reason on my spreadsheet, I had it from the year 2000. So clearly I am mistaken. I well, must have had a reissue. So they did. And what happened was it won or it was nominated for a bunch of awards when it first came out. And then 20 years later, it won um, the Phoenix Award. I mean, literally Phoenix rising from the ashes, right? The idea of the mm-hmm. Phoenix Award is to rise, raise a book out of obscurity that should have been recognized when it was initially published more widely than it was. Wow. So I think there was quite a lot of buzz around it at that point, And obviously the film. Although, man, I mean, it's not exactly a direct adaptation, is it? It is not, which is so funny because when I sat down to first begin watching it, I thought, okay, this is really following along fairly closely. <laughs> and then, nope. Nope. But we'll get there. And it's actually the first of a series. The Howell series includes Castle in the Air, published in 1990, and House of Many Ways, published in 2008. Diana Wynne-Jones has a strong and established reputation as a children's fantasy writer, but Howell's Moving Castle is, I think, by far her most famous work. Her work that, at least I would say, if you said the name Diana Wynne-Jones, I think most people would come up with Howell's Moving Castle before any of her other books. Although fans of fantasy are probably screaming at their podcast right now because she is a very very dare you (laughs) so i just jump into the plot so uh the story is about sophie hatter she's the eldest of three sisters living in the most englishly named town ever market Mm -hmm. chipping (laughs) they live in a kingdom well they live in a world it's just magical it's just established and accepted that magic is a thing which is a choice that I really liked on Win Jones's part because I, I, you don't need backstory for this kind of magic. This just mm-hmm. is, right? Mm-hmm. So she does a good job with it. 
I I texted Joe that it had Shades of Enchanted for me because there's a there's sort of a whole thing about Sophie has read a lot of stories. She's sort of lived in this fairy tale like world for long enough to know that as the eldest of three sisters, she will not be successful. (laughs) She just doesn't get it. The middle child will make the family proud and the youngest child will do something amazing and go off to seek her fortune. But as the eldest, she's just going to have to look after the ailing parents and manage the businesses and such until she dies. And she's just kind of like... Yep. Okay. I'm okay with it. Um, and I mean, she says she is, but she's really not. No, she's and I totally think that's not. why we have this story. She announces herself as sort of being present to enable the futures of her sisters. And that's certainly what she, how she acts outwardly. But her willingness to even begin this journey obviously says that, no, there's a hero inside her waiting to come out. And that hero is the ability to clean. <laughs> At first, it's the ability to clean. Eventually, what she learns is that her magic is really, her her capacity for magic is really born of her ability to understand people and her deep sense of empathy and the fact that she is an attentive listener and aware of the world around her. Joe, not just that wow. she can clean. <laughs> I don't know, Brenna. I think you're reaching. Don't you think you're you're reading into it just a touch too much? <laughs> I couldn't even get it all out before I started laughing at myself. So. Yes. Okay. So let, I'm I'm going to jump in and help you at different points just to make sure you don't get too I was just down. about to say the adventure begins when she gets cursed by the Witch of the Waste. There we go. Okay. <laughs> so she's in her hat shop one day and she has an encounter with the Witch of the Waste who turns her into an old crone. Mm-hmm. Um, so she goes from being 17 years old to looking... About 90. Well, yeah. yeah she, or Well, she looks good for 90 is what we find out when she encounters an 86-year-old. Um, <laughs> but yes, she ends up being very old and so she leaves it's sort of this opportunity for her right like it's an interesting moment in her character when she's just kind of like oh well i guess if i'm an old crone anyway i might as well go i was like she doesn't want to worry her sisters so she decides that just abandoning the post of the hat shop and leaving without telling anyone is the best option yeah it's definitely her out from this from this family in this situation and she finds work as a cleaning lady for the wizard howl of the howl's moving castle which like is just a thing that everybody is aware of there's a castle that moves and they're just all like oh so it's just a thing yeah, just don't let your daughters wander around because he might steal them and eat their souls. And uh, she sort of gets locked into a relationship with this house because the fire, Calcifer, is the sort of personified fire demon who heats the house and helps it get the energy to move and such. Uh, and he guesses that she has been cursed. And she understands that he has made a contract that he wants to break with Howell. But he can't describe the actual content of the contract. And she's not allowed to talk about the curse. So they kind of just both know that each other need help, but they don't know how to help each other. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, very enchanted where you've been cursed, but you can't actually talk about it or you can't help people to understand so that they could break it for you. Yes. And so the other complicating factors that emerge are the two sisters that Sophie has left behind. The boy who is the magician's apprentice falls in love with one of them and the magician sort of falls in love with the other one. Question mark. Yeah. Question mark. So she ends up having to manage and maneuver that situation. And... There's a whole other plot where the king's son has gone missing and the witch of the waste will have to be destroyed in order for the son to be, not son, brother. The king's brother has gone missing. And so in order to release the brother, uh, the witch of the waste will have to be destroyed. The witch of the waste has also threatened a curse on Howell. So he's just been avoiding her. Uh, And so everything culminates in the end when, of course, Sophie is the one who saves the day. Yes. And that was very nicely done, by the way. I just have one more sentence. Okay. And P.S. She was secretly in love with Howell all the time. So once she's young and hot, they declare their love for each other. Yeah. Felt real tacked on. That part. (laughs) You know, you can see it coming. And even though you hope that it won't. It's there. It's always there. It's always there. Attention, all aspiring YA authors within the sound of my voice. What if there (laughs) wasn't a love story? Just what if? Just what if? (laughs) i mean this is representative of a certain kind of ya from a certain time period so we can't belabor that point too heavily but yeah 
And it's definitely part of it is it's playing with a fairy tale structure. And mm-hmm. so the marriage at the end is very much a part of the fairy tale structure. But I was so hoping that Diana Wynne Jones was going to subvert that. In yeah, the end. And, and maybe she does in some of those future installments. I've yeah, that's not true. We looked at what happens in the sequels. No, I haven't either. So if people have read the other books, do let us know. Because I'd be interested. I mean, yes, we could just go and look it up ourselves. But isn't it so much more fun to hear from you? Yes. And also, we're not <laughs> going to look it up. <laughs> not really. I didn't mind this book, but I think I had hoped that I would like it more based on the way that it started. It had mm-hmm. a fun and kind of frisky vibe to it. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of gets bogged down in its own random plot developments. There's mm-hmm. just a lot of characters to play around with. And I don't think that all of them maybe get the time and attention that they need or deserve in order to make this story really shine. I think that I agree with you. It definitely moved more slowly than I was anticipating. And the thing that I liked about the beginning of the book that mostly falls away by the end is that the beginning is really doing all this enchanted-esque stuff with subversion of tropes, you know, around the fact that, like, she just knows she's an eldest daughter, so nothing will become of her. And there's all kinds of play with that at the beginning that gets subsumed by the adventure story. I mean, for obvious reasons, but for me... That very subtle satire was the real playful fun of the book. And so I missed it when it disappeared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's hard to critique some of this because to a certain extent, there is a tried and true-ness to the formula in mm-hmm. which, you know, the wizard is not as bad as he seems. And of course, it's all about getting to know him and him getting to know her and them coming to these understandings. Like, but... There's something quite saggy about the middle to late sections where there's just not actually that much happening, but there's a lot happening at the same time, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it sometimes seems that Wynn Jones has gotten a little too wrapped up in her plot and she's forgotten what she's actually trying to accomplish. Or maybe it's just that she started with one aim and then it morphed into something else. I don't know. Yeah, I don't disagree with what you're saying at all. There are moments where she's such an effective storyteller and her prose is so evocative. I'm thinking in particular of the scene where we go and meet Howell's family. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Oh, we've not talked about that. So it turns out that Howell is actually a Welshman from our real world. Yes. And he has more or less discovered a way out of it and into this magical world where he has refashioned himself as not a loser who can't play rugby very well and Mm -hmm. is a disappointment to his family. Mm -hmm. So in the very same way where he is very average in one circumstance and then he becomes something exceptional when he has the opportunity to reinvent himself, which is again mirrored by Sophie's journey. And it's particularly well done, I think, for a bunch of reasons. So so I've spent some time in Wales with student groups. We've done a few field schools over there. and um, Wow, brag about it. (laughs) No, I'm saying because when you take, I mean, when you do the sort of touristy part of Wales, and if we have Welsh listeners, I'm not speaking to your lived experience of Welshness. Just talking about the touristy part. The touristy part is very... Touristy? It's very magic and dragons, right? It's this idea like... Wales is the land of Merlin and Wales is the land of dragons and it's sort of what separates Wales from England in a lot of ways Um, and there's all these Mm. legends about like the Welsh dragon who defends the border with England and the idea that like King Arthur's legend is really a Welsh legend and, and that Merlin was a real person and there's kind of all of this kind of magical stuff so I love that she kind of takes this sense that Wales at least markets itself as being this magical space and she kind of like okay but what if what if it what if it is (laughs) like what if this young man sort of realizes this line between the magical world and the quote-unquote real world actually does lie in Wales and he makes a transition but the other thing that I think is really effective about that component is and I didn't even look up Diana Wynne Jones's background. I know she was born in London and died in Bristol, but I'm not sure what her connection to Wales is, except that her name is extremely Welsh. Wynne Jones is extremely okay. Welsh. But her facility with the accent in that passage, normally I hate it when authors try to write <laughs> accents on the page because yeah. the odds that your ear is going to pick it up effectively are slim to nil. And it just feels, oh my God, my son has these 
old school Thomas the Tank Engine books. Like he has the entire series of reissued ones from, I guess, the 40s. And all the Scottish trains are like written in these thick, stereotypical, vaguely insulting Scots accents. Where it's like, get out. (laughs) It's so bad. Just don't do that. Don't ever do that. But it's written so thickly in these books that you can't read it without doing the accent. Oh, it's awful. And so... I'm always dreading that. But what I love about what Diana Wynne-Jones here does is, so Howell, when he returns to Wales, everybody calls him Howell. And mm-hmm. so there's something about the Welsh accent. I think it's that the strength, the emphasis always comes on the third syllable when Welsh people speak English, if I'm not mistaken. And you can hear that in the way the sentences are constructed. There's like a tone shift and a musicality in just the way she spells words. But it's Hmm. never like, oh, now I have to read this in a goofy voice that I don't really know what I'm doing. Right. So I was just really appreciative of that. It shows a really tender attention to sound and how sound works in literature, which, you know, we don't always see. So I I like, like, there were moments like that throughout the text where I was like, wow, you're really good at this. Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you're really good at evoking truth in people's experiences. But as a whole, I found the book a bit of, um, well, I think I said off the top, it's a bit slow. And as the book progressed, those moments that I so enjoyed where her incredible strength as um, a writer and someone developing like really authentic feeling characters kind of got lost in the like, and then this guy is missing and then there's this curse and then there's this spell and now we have to do this. And Mm -hmm. But somehow all of that stuff is happening really fast, but you're moving through it kind of really slowly. I don't know if I'm articulating it well, but it just didn't 100% work for me. Uh, No, I completely agree with you. There were a lot of parts of this that felt like episodic adventures. And if you could just focus on that piece, it was entertaining and it was lively. And there's a lot of great visual imagery. Like I love the concept of the boots that take you really far with a single step. And how hard that would be to actually use. Well, particularly if you only have one foot in it, right? That's the kind of moment I really loved where it's like, actually, none of this could possibly be effortless, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this scene, if you haven't read the book, where she's, yeah, she and Michael each take one of the magic boots so that they can both get somewhere really quickly. And like, because she only has one foot in the boot, every time she lands, she stumbles and like goes farther again and she she spends like a solid 15 minutes trying to get to where she's supposed to be and like throwing herself around and it's only because the boot gets stuck in a cow patty that she doesn't fly for and moments like that really work her sense of timing around those moments really works but i agree with you it's almost like i would like to read a book of sophie's short story adventures as opposed to trying to have the whole thing hang together and I almost think I found Howell boring. Ooh. Yeah. 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 Okay, so back to Howell. Mm-hmm. Howell? 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 <laughs> so in the book, he's very much presented as a playboy who yeah. is narcissistic. He's yeah. very self-centered. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the book, of course, we find out that he's secretly been trying to break Sophie's curse and that he knew from the moment he saw her that she was under someone's spell which doesn't really hang with the way he's been interacting with her not at all and i guess one of the things that i did actually like about the ending is the acknowledgement that they have fallen for each other but they also haven't really changed like they're still very much the people that they were which is encouraging particularly in a story constructed around a fairy tale where people tend to be like this person is magical and perfect yes that's true So I did like that, but in terms of a character, Howell, I feel like he's meant to be mysterious because Mm. we don't get a sense of anything more beyond what Sophie is making of him, and she's often quite frustrated with him Mm because he's not the kind of person she would normally Mm -hmm. spend time with or maybe even interact with. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that Howell just kind of comes across as a bit of a one-dimensional flake. I agree, unfortunately. And I think that's part of my frustration when they end up together at the end is that he hasn't earned that. No. I mean, you're generous in calling him a playboy. Like, he's kind of a misogynistic dick. 
Yeah. <laughs> in the way he treats the women of the surrounding communities, right? And so, I don't know. I didn't feel like he had earned the ending that he got. No. I think one of the other issues is that we never really get the sense that Sophie has feelings for him beyond liking him. Yes, I agree. I think she enjoys the castle and she enjoys the adventures that they have together. But I never got the impression that it went beyond simply being like, yeah, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. Agree. hundred percent. Thousand percent agree. (laughs) And it also, maybe I'm the only one who thinks this, but I think part of the charm of what's going on with Sophie's character is that she's wildly independent considering the time and the circumstances. Do you know what I mean? Like she's like... Nah, not really going to have kids. Meh, love. And then at the end, it's like... Mm. I guess I could just do everything conventionally. You know? And I just, I, I don't know. It disappointed me. It almost feels like the book was intended as a standalone. And then after it all started to come together, it was like, but what if we made this a series? How are we going to keep <laughs> these two together? Yeah. They should have a romance, which is actually very mortal engine Z, right? Yes. Because in that book, it was very much, okay, we've got a standalone adventure where we're thrown together and we have to have these adventures. And then at the end, well, maybe we should have romantic love as well. It's like, no, <laughs> you yep. just not. Exactly. You could <laughs> just not. And I guess, oh, it's funny. Those two are from pretty much the same period, right? Uh, Yes. Yeah, I think mid to late 80s, right? Yeah. And they both come out of what is clearly a British fantasy tradition. I mean, right. Diana Wynne-Jones is literally throwing in place names from Lord of the Rings (laughs) and like all the characters in Howell's family, their names, well, a lot of them are Arthurian legend names. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's like all of this sort of legacy and history. And I, yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe that trope, maybe subverting that trope is just one step too far by 1986. I don't know. Right. Maybe we're asking a little bit too much from our historical fantasy YA. Yeah. 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 It just, I mean, this is why we do it and we bring our modern day sensibilities into it because I think it's important to acknowledge that not only has YA changed over the years, but that there was maybe some replication of particular types of gender norms, particular kinds of roles and responsibilities for different types of people. Yes. And it's okay to acknowledge that that was different. And it's, I think, also okay to say, let's see if we can maybe update this or let's talk about why this isn't maybe the greatest representation. Yeah, I definitely think so. And and to acknowledge what's working really well in the text and what the author does well. And, you know, I mean, just like we ask of our listeners, tell us how to be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you want to shift into the film? Sure. And maybe unpack that in conjunction? Because there's... Oh, we're going to get mail. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've got an English language trailer that we can run. So we'll oh, start with sure. that. Oh, sure. The listeners get the dubbed version. Fine. <laughs> From master filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki, the director of the Academy Award-winning Spirited Away. That is ancient sorcery. Quite powerful, too. This summer, experience the epic tale of a young woman transformed by a mysterious curse. That's really me, isn't it? An enchanted moving castle. This is a magic house. And the one wizard powerful enough to set her free. This charm will guarantee your safe return. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli production of a Hayao Miyazaki film. Hold on. This June, journey to amazing new worlds. Find me in the future! Aboard Howl's Moving Castle. Okay, so the film comes out of Japan, and it's from 2004. And of course, it's by very, very well-known and very, very well-respected Studio Ghibli. And it was directed by the master himself, 
Hayawa Miyazaki. No. That was Miyazaki. Miyazaki. It is. Yeah. I had it broken down phonetically. Yeah. So it comes from Miyazaki. Mm -hmm. And he is possibly one of the most renowned animators in the entire world. He has won an Oscar for Spirited Away, which was, I believe, the film directly before this one. Mm -hmm. And he read this book. He fell in love with the idea of the story. It very much suits his sensibilities as a content creator because he loves the intersection between nature and spell casting and Mm -hmm. ghosts and the supernatural and that kind of stuff. And then he loves to throw that into conjunction with things like modernism and technology and war. So possibly the biggest distinction between the two texts is that the war that is hinted at in Wynne Jones's book series is a dominant portion of this film. So if, if you read the book and then you watch the movie... It was very shocking when I watched the film last night Mm -hmm, (laughs) to be like, where's all this war stuff coming from? Yes. I was so confused that I Googled (laughs) just because it's such a departure. Um, And um, apparently Miyazaki has spoken at length about how the strong anti-war themes and the decision to make the war a more prominent part here than in the book had to do with his distaste for the Iraq War in 2003. Mm Mm-hmm. He saw this film as a direct response like a direct to... direct response, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, he believed that he was making a film that would be poorly received in the U.S. because of the explicitly anti-war thematics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think what ended up happening was that people thought that it was really great and they loved the visuals and they completely missed the fact that he was delivering an anti-war message to the doorstep. And an anti-empire message, right? An anti-messing in other people's business message. Yes. So one of the important things for people to know is that the film strips away a lot of the secondary characters. So in the film, Sophie has one sister, not two, and she is not a romantic conquest for either Michael, who becomes Mikhail, And it's like five. And it's like, yeah, he's a very young child. He's not a teenager in this. So I think that works as a magician's apprentice or a wizard's apprentice. And then uh, the sister is also not for Howl either. So there's really no romantic subtext except for what's going on between Sophie and Howl. Yep. Which does not work. Doesn't work. Doesn't work at all. I hate it. I hate it in the film. (laughs) I didn't love it in the book and I actively hated it in the movie. I felt the exact same way and I think I was more forgiving of the book because it's so clearly playing within a particular set of tropes Mm -hmm. and while I wanted it to be more subversive of those tropes I can forgive it for choosing not to but the film has no such confines. No but I also don't know that the film is playing within the same rules and guidelines. Like, it's never pretending to be a fairy tale. That's what I mean. Like, it doesn't have the conventions oh, of the genre that would anticipate the love story. So why? why, why? But why? Yeah. Uh, and I can't say with any authority why. Because to me, it's one of a couple of decisions that I don't know if, again, we're talking about a cultural difference that we maybe don't appreciate that is more mm. particularly Japanese. Very possible. Or if it's just this is what we do you know we've got a young girl and we've got a super hot androgynous wizard (laughs) (laughs) so the other big difference in this is that the witch of the waste is not our central antagonist in fact she's actually defanged rather early in the film by the film's true villain in quotation marks because i don't know that this film has a human villain No. And that is Madame Sullivan, who in the book is one of the previous wizards who the Witch of the Waste took care of. And he becomes, you know, kind of wrapped up in the the larger random plot about the witch's plan. Here, the villain, Madame Sullivan, is a mix of that wizard as well as Howell's teacher, who I had written somewhere and now I've forgotten. It's like Pendergarden or something. Uh, you're, you're combining Pendragon with Penstemon. So Penstemon is the teacher and right. Pendragon is the name that he goes by when okay. he's with her. Right. So she's a combination of Penstemon and Sullivan. Mm-hmm. So in the film, this is the king's magician. 
he has several because the country is at war with its neighbors and they've recruited all these wizards and witches in the service of this war effort but it's revealed fairly quickly that madame sullivan is really the one who's pulling the strings Mm -hmm. which is something that's a part of the message that the americans likely missed yeah (laughs) it's not the leader who's in charge there's this nefarious person pulling the strings behind the scenes Mm -hmm. and then of course she's really doing it just because she feels like it but she wages war against howl and against the witch of the waste because she feels that the deal they have made with their demons is a corrupting force which is a nice holdover from the book but in the film It needs to be unpacked a little bit more because the first time we meet her, she basically says, oh, by the way, I don't like what you're doing and I'm going after you with everything I've got. You're like, oh, what? Sorry? Excuse me? Where did this come from? (laughs) I read a review of the film that was a sort of explicit comparison, I guess, between the book and the film, which we don't often see. So I love those because... They give us things to talk about on the show. <laughs> what I liked true. about it. So it was Antonia Levi, and she described the experience of watching the film as um, similar to the experience of reading high-quality fan fiction. Yes. And she said, because although the characters and setting are the same, the story is different. But this is the part where I think she really nails it. She says, Jones uses Sophie Howell and Calcifer in a fairy tale format to tell a story about challenging class and gender expectations. Miyazaki uses the same characters to tell a story about personal loyalty, love, and war. So, like, the characters are the same, the set pieces are the same, the intention and thematics are completely different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's impossible to watch this movie and not understand that it's about war and personal responsibility, which comes across a little bit in the book, because Howell is constantly dodging responsibility. But that's more of a character trait than a plot. Yeah, he's a slipper outer. (laughs) <laughs> right? which i enjoyed i like that i enjoyed saying. that <laughs> especially when she says it to the king yes <laughs> she's like such a mm, my son he's just like he's a bit of a loser <laughs> he's a slipper <laughs> outer <laughs> the other thing about the film that i think is a really important change is that sophie doesn't really ever become the powerful sorceress in her own right that she no. is in the book i don't think she has any powers at all in the movie I guess just that she can control, she has more control over the curse that's on her than she does in the book, right? But Mm -hmm. otherwise, no. And that, to me... It's a bit frustrating, isn't it? Well, it's a bit frustrating because otherwise you just have like this one evil woman and then just no no other interesting women. But... Oh, you're going to do a gender critique. (laughs) But I came to terms with it once I accepted that the film is not... Yeah, it's just not going to do that. And it's not Sophie's coming-of-age story. So the book is Sophie's coming-of-age story, right? It's Sophie's discovery that she does actually have to have a life of her own, that she doesn't just have to serve her slightly kind of evil, actually, stepmother and her two sisters. Mm -hmm. And the film is not that. And it took me, I will confess that it took me solidly halfway into the film to accept that that was the case and not just be mad. But then once I had accepted it, it was okay. And this is an interesting point then, do we even consider this film a YA property? Mm. I mean, one of the things I actually really liked about the book was this idea that the character, our main character, is a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old who spends almost the entire duration of her hero's journey as a 90-year-old woman. Yeah. I thought that was so fascinating. I did too. Whereas in the film, there's an interesting slippage in the way that Sophie's age and the way that she looks visually it's challenged or compromised by her mood and emotion so sometimes she looks younger sometimes she looks older sometimes she looks somewhere in the middle her eyes in the film are really evocative in that way yeah I mean welcome back to Japanese animation yeah but yeah it just struck me that not only is this not a coming-of-age movie it's really almost not about Sophie. It's I mean, not it about is, Sophie. But, but it's, it's really not. about her and Howell. Yeah. Again, it's not bad per se. It's just something that when you're looking at a book to film comparison, very, very different. And it's just, I don't know. We get so few of these adventure stories about young women that aren't profoundly conventional, you know? And not that this is particularly, as we've talked about, it's not a particularly subversive version of that story even in the novel version, mm-hmm. in order to accept what the film was actually doing and recognize what it was doing <laughs> in an interesting way, I had to grieve a little bit the loss of Sophie as the true protagonist. Right. 
Yeah, I read a couple of different interpretations and a couple of comments from Miyazaki about how this film has a feminist message. And I just wanted to bring it up because I'm not even going to throw it back to you because I'm going to tackle this. Okay, good. Because I'm making a face. Yeah, I know. Because the suggestion is, oh, well, it doesn't matter if you're young or old or if you're beautiful or like an ugly old crone, you still have a part to play in the adventure. And all I could think of was, no. (laughs) That is not, A, what this film is doing because Sophie is often not her own active agent. Mm Mm-hmm. If anything, she is along for the ride as things happen to her. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that the film is making any kind of reference to ageism and beauty and capacity. Like, it's a plot device that gets her out of her dreary life and into this life of adventure. And then at the end of the film, like, the curse isn't even really broken. Howell just says, hey, I like your gorgeous gray hair. Yeah. And then they mack on each other's faces. (laughs) So I was deeply frustrated because all I could think of was, "Mm, if we're going to talk about empowering female messages, I think we can do better than this. And I I just think it's because that's not what the film is actually doing. Like, that's not one of its goals. I read some, I I didn't write down where I read this, but I I read someone's feeling that the reason this film is feminist is because Howell is not a playboy in this film version. Right, which he very much isn't. They switch out the loving stuff for the war stuff. Yeah, objectively true. But it takes more to make a film feminist than to have the male character be less gross. Yeah. Like, imagine if that's all it took. Let's shoot higher people. Right? (laughs) There's so much to work with in the source material around Sophie's character, and there's so many choices that I would have made differently from Diana Wynne-Jones if I was adapting the film that uh, it's one of the first times I've actually been like, I wish I could see this film. As a more straightforward adaptation. Honestly, no, I wasn't even going to say that. Directed by a woman. What would Howl's Moving Castle look like if the person who read the source material had identified with the protagonist and not Howl? Hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Like, I don't even get a strong gender vibe from this film. Mm -hmm. To me, this is very much a film made by a noted pacifist who wants... I mean, Miyazaki very much makes message movies. Mm -hmm. All of his films are about his feelings about the state of the world. Mm -hmm. He's very much the kind of person who says, I wish we could go back into the past because he doesn't like modernity. He doesn't Mm -hmm. like what technology has done to us as people. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes across very strongly in the film. But in a way, what he's done is he said, I like the shape of this one idea from the book, which is the piece that he gravitates to, which is the piece that everyone highlights in the film, which is the look and the feel of this moving castle. What would it look like to have a castle moving across the English countryside? And he takes that kernel and he takes the characters and then he just strips away everything else so that he Mm -hmm. can make an anti-war film, Mm -hmm. which is fine. But in a way, it's actually defeating the purpose of what we're trying to do here because this is not an adaptation of this book no it's not and i don't disagree with a single thing you said just now except that i want to push back on how you opened that thought which was you said i don't think there's a gendered piece here and i would challenge you that you're reading it as neutral because we read men's readings of text as neutral oh snap <laughs> Coming at me with that. Okay, yes, absolutely, 100%. It's the same thing that we do with assuming that all of our characters are Caucasian yeah. and so on. Yes. Yeah. I appreciate that. In my own defense, I simply meant <laughs> that I don't I don't feel I don't know, like I don't know that there's a protagonist in this film. I feel like it's just people that exist so that they can can deliver this message no and i totally don't disagree with you there but i think the but i like that you challenged me on it because i (laughs) feel like it's a statement that needs to be said so that people can think about it think about how you're approaching these texts because we do we always read them from a masculine perspective Mm -hmm. and from a very white privilegey kind of perspective and his his willingness Miyazaki's willingness to sort of run roughshod over mm-hmm. what is ultimately a story about gender in many Very ways, much. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. His lack of interest in that component of the source text tells me something. Mm-hmm. 
not going to say his anti-Iraq war message is bad or wrong, because, yeah. like, right there with you, buddy. Yeah, Honestly, sure. 100%. Yeah. But... You did Sophie dirty. And what if you could tell that story and still allow Sophie to be a whole person? Like, what if you could do both? That's all. Yeah. What if you could do both? And what if we didn't have to lose the gender component and the class component? Because I think mm. so. I think Wyndham's also saying a lot about class in this book. I mean, look at what is expected of Howell by his family and how, like, what it takes to opt for something different within those confines and obviously everything with Sophie is class-based and her ability to imagine a future for herself is deeply Mm -hmm. and and her ability to imagine herself out of that future like it requires a curse basically so anyway I just think there are some really interesting components that Miyazaki has decided are less interesting to him and it's fine for him to decide they're less interesting for him but it's also fine for me to say but what if they're not (laughs) <laughs> Very true. And I love I love the statement that you said that you had to grieve a little bit mm-hmm. at the loss of what could have been. Because I do sometimes feel like that's a bit of a pervasive thing that comes up when we talk about some of these adaptations where yeah. we're so frequently talking about the decisions, the economic decisions that Hollywood films have made mm-hmm. for the purpose of introducing explosion action sequences mm-hmm. or giving us a ridiculous climatic finale over something that's quieter and more introspective. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fascinating to see this movie from a Japanese perspective that is kind of doing the same thing, but in a more culturally specific kind of way, right? Where mm-hmm. The resolution to the war is actually the thing that I love the most about this movie, where you think that everything is going to be building to a crescendo where Howell is going to have to fight everybody and there's this looming threat that he's going to turn into this angry bird monster thing the more that he uses his powers. And in a traditional Hollywood film, those things would have come to pass. And instead here, it simply becomes about Sophie discovering that she needs to replace his heart. And that alone is enough to convince Madame Sullivan, oh, you know what? Let's not do this (laughs) war thing because war is dumb and I don't even know why I started this whole thing. I should just put an end to it. I love that. I love the simplicity of that resolution. Yes. Well, I mean, it really underscores what Miyazaki is saying, which is war and conflict and the way we live in the society that we live in currently is a choice that we're making every day. Mm -hmm. That often singular people are making for their Mm -hmm. own gross ambition and desires. Mm -hmm. And the rest of us just exist within it. Yeah. As I say, I love all of those components of it. But it's interesting. So I don't know if you caught, there's um, like a little preface at the beginning of Howl's Moving Castle where Diana Wynne-Jones says that she was on a book tour and a little boy asked her, what if a castle could move? And she was like, hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And she's sort of filed it away and she can't remember the boy's name, but she wants to acknowledge that this boy said this thing that stuck with her and that's why we have this book. Right. And I kind of wanted, I kind of wanted Miyazaki to be at the beginning like, so I read this book and I didn't Can't really remember care about the most name of the what author happened. or what happened, but I'm <laughs> but... struck by this idea of a moving castle. <laughs> and so now we have this movie. Because yeah. to me, it's the same level of like, quote unquote, adaptation. Yeah. The experience of watching this film was, I think you're right, a much more explicit version of the way we watch all adaptations. And because it departs so dramatically, it, I think in turn, makes me aware of this process of grieving that I'm talking about, where you actually do have to let go of the source material if you're going to enjoy or take for what it is, the follow-on material. And I think part of it is that Miyazaki is a genius, and this film is doing something really interesting in its own right. And so that grieving process is short, because there is something to accept and enjoy on the other end right the problem is when the film is garbage because (laughs) as we've had with a couple of these clunkers right right because then you have the process of you have to grieve what you did love about the book but there is nothing to hold on to on the other side yes so then you just come to the podcast roll mad (laughs) yes which our listeners have indicated they like from me I also just have to commend you because that was so eloquently stated and perfectly summarizes a lot of the challenges I feel like we've been having over the last almost year. Yeah. How have we never talked about grieving a bad adaptation until now? (laughs) 
into an adaptation that's good, actually, but right? not an adaptation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for the first time, what we've got is a non-adaptation that stands very well on its own. I don't think that this is Miyazaki's best film. Mm-hmm. I think this is kind of a, a bit of a middle range film for him. Mm-hmm. The visuals are sumptuous. I love some of the character design, particularly the Witch of the Waste and the way that she decomposes into just a frail old woman. My the look at the Calcifer. dog. Oh, you I like love Calcifer. Calcifer. I Interesting. Do. I didn't. Calcifer reminds me of something from like Fantasia. Uh, you know? Okay. Yeah. He, he looks to me exactly like a fire sprite should look. Interesting. Yeah. I think I wanted more of a structured character design for him, not just oh. eyes in a fire. See, I loved that he, because that's Calcifer, right? He can while away to mere cinders and then you blow on him and he's back. Mm-hmm. So I loved that. And I loved, there's a scene where she's, the scene where she's cleaning up the I was just going to say that. Yes, <laughs> where he's desperately holding onto that little tiny log. It's funny because I, that scene in the book I really like for totally different reasons. Because uh, in the film, they're so early in their relationship, she doesn't really understand right. how Calcifer works. And mm-hmm. he's like trying to communicate to her that he is actually slowly dying. Yes. Please <laughs> help me. Why are you not paying attention to me? She's like, I'm just cleaning. Leave me alone for a moment. Yeah, I'm in my flow zone. I liked the way their relationship was visualized. I don't like Tiny Michael. I really don't. I didn't like him as a little kid. I okay. found him annoying. Okay, just there like I he's not it. contributing anything to yes. the film? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I know lots of people think he's like one of the cutest characters in animation, and I disagree. Oh, I think he's super adorable looking as a baby tyke kind of character, but it made me uncomfortable near the end of the film where he says, Sophie, don't go. We're a family, aren't we? And all I could think of was, no, <laughs> we don't need to be imposing a mother-son huh? relationship on this. No. No, it's too weird. There's already the weird mother-son stuff going on between Howell and Sophie. We don't need him in there, too. Yeah. I'll confess that the character that I liked the least in the film, visually speaking, was Howell. Agree. Strong agree. He felt... (sighs) Yeah, how to put this. (laughs) Maybe it's because I spend too much time on Twitter and spend just an awful lot of time being yelled at by anime avatars, but he... Mm. he looked so generically anime to me. Yes. Which is weird because every other character is so carefully articulated. Yes. I found that odd. Yeah, I was so in love with the way that Sophie looks when she's at her most aged. Mm-hmm. I love the wrinkles on her face. I love the way that she's stooped. I love that she's shorter physically than she is normally. I loved all of that. And then to contrast that with a character who looked like he could have been coming out of like any anime same hair, same Hi, I'm body. Howell. I'm here from Dragon Ball Z. A little bit. <laughs> it was kind of deeply frustrating. And I felt like the voice actor in our Japanese version was not giving him very much inflection. Yeah, I agree. So and he I was think... so flat, so boring. I mean, I said that I found his character boring in the book, and I stand by that. But for me, this was something that underscored the lack of depth and agency for Sophie because if you're not going to have Howell be sort of interesting and compelling then what have you got left well and there's even less reason for the sort of I was going to say neutering but that's the wrong word in this context (laughs) um, of Sophie's character right like I think through the way he created Howell it made me realize that the point of this film is not in the characterizations, yeah. which again is a significant departure from what Diana Wynne-Jones is doing, because even when the plot is kind of slow, the characters are yeah. incredibly well articulated. Yeah, they're keeping you invested for sure. Yeah. I will say, though, one thing that I thought I would never praise that I absolutely adored, my favorite part of the entire film, Old Lady, Race Up the Steps. <laughs> That part, I think I guffawed. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. Yeah. I didn't love overall the film. It's maybe just a little bit messy. There's some storytelling that is unconventional to North American viewers, which is difficult for us to reconcile with. Like, mm-hmm. why is this happening? Where? What? Huh? Mm-hmm. So that that's always just something that you have to adapt to. But overall, there's some really stunning fascinating moments in this film that I was so happy to have had the opportunity to witness. 
even just the visualization of him feeling despondent and gooping green slime yes. and them having to get him up into the bath. So wonderfully visual in the way that it's adapted. Yes, I agree with that. That kind of stuff. Like, very good. But overall... Hmm. I think when you describe it as messy, I think why it's messy is because it's trying to be an adaptation that doesn't need to be. Right. Just make a movie about a castle that moves around and be like, hey, I once read this book about a castle that moves around. Anyway, here's this Iraq movie. Yeah. Like, because <laughs> <laughs> the problem with the way he's done it is that he obviously, he obviously loves the source material because he obviously feels some affinity for moments in the text, certain characters, certain set pieces. Mm-hmm. And he clearly wants to include those. And then he also wants to do this story about war. Yeah. And it's too much. They just don't feel like they connect. And as a no. result, something has been lost. Maybe Miyazaki should have adapted the Moral, Moral Engines. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yes, Brenna. That's genius. <laughs> uh, if only. If only. I have one piece of trivia before we, uh, we call this. Okay. Hit me with trivia. I love that you're doing trivia now all the time. Yeah, That's this is now fun. my thing that I do. Okay. So there's so much trivia here because, so I didn't know that Christian deathcore was a kind of music. Oh. Christian deathcore is a kind of music. Some people call it Jesus metal. I'm going to say no to that. And there's a Jesus metal band called A Thousand Times Repent. (laughs) And they released an entire EP called Virtue Has Few Friends that is inspired by Howl's Moving Castle, the book. Wow. Yep. Including a song called Take Me to the Witch of the Waste. We have much to discuss. I don't see a Christian <laughs> angle to this book. And I certainly don't see a Christian rock angle. Not Christian rock. Christian deathcore. I, I don't even know what to make of that. <laughs> I know. Why have you introduced this to my life? <laughs> I'm really into bad trivia now. It's like my thing. Okay. All right. Well, how do you feel about YA bingo? Is that a thing that you're really interested in? <laughs> I'm going to try, but I feel like the film is not YA. And I'm honestly kind of feel like the book is maybe middle grade. But let's let's cram those things together and come up with bingo. Do you want to yeah. go first? Yeah, let's just force it, shall we? <laughs> bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so I'm going to say supernatural elements because we have some magic. Yes. And I'm going to say that there is a convenient expertise in the way that Sophie happens to have the magical skill that will help her to save the day. Oh, that's fair. I thought you were going to say in her cleaning, her ability to clean. Well, there is that as well. But I I feel like, is that an expertise? Is that convenient? It seems like it's it's just a helpful skill. Um, I'm going to say absentee adults. Okay. Because... Because that stepmom just pieces off. <laughs> She's just a disaster, isn't she? And it's funny because when Jones, I think it's just Jones. Jones is so good at having you in Sophie's head that you don't even realize that the stepmom is a disaster until one of the sisters mentions it. And then you're like, oh, oh yeah, no, yeah, that's not how you should behave. <laughs> But at the same time, she's not evil. I did like the fact that at the end, she comes back and she says, you know what? I really did just want to make sure that you were all sort of taken care of. I just went about it in a way that an evil stepmother typically would. (laughs) Okay. But don't hate me because I actually do love all of you. (laughs) I do love all of you. I didn't want to pay you for your labor, but I do love you. Right. She can't be paying those wages. She's got to go off and find herself a rich. That That's like the truest of YA stories, right? Yes. She's, oh, no, I can't treat you well. I've got to go off and find a rich husband. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, we should probably throw in some unlikely friendships. I was going to just about to say unlikely friendships, definitely. Yeah, I mean, they're all, <laughs> literally every friendship in the book is unlikely. For sure. And I want to say musicality. In the film, music is obviously central. Mm-hmm. I mean, Miyazaki makes incredible use of that orchestral score for yes. mood. But I also, I really, I know I already said this, but the way Jones writes dialogue has such a careful ear for how people speak in different cadences and, and accents and dialects that I was really impressed by. So I actually want to say it for the book as well. Right. I'm calling that musicality because we don't have, I don't know, what would you call that? It's about the best way that we can include it. You know? And I, I didn't say it at the time, but I do want to say one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because I did not pick up on that at all. So when you said it, I was just quietly gasping. 
oh right <laughs> holy cow never would have picked up on it well you do that for me all the time that's why this is fun hmm. and then allusions to classic lit i think i already mentioned the king arthur legends and yes. um lord of the rings well and isn't isn't um the curse that the witch of the waste puts on howl in the book isn't that a famous poem it is yeah it's a john dunn poem correct there we go yeah and the other thing is that she's actually alluding to her own stable of literature because I guess the wizard who has taught Howell, I think, has also taught one of the wizards in another book that she has written. Okay. Making yeah. those in connections to your own material. Cool. Right? I kind of love the idea of an author thinking of all of their books as existing in the same world. Yeah. That is fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. And uh, I think that's good. Yeah. I think that's everything. I'm looking at the list. I think that's everything. I think so, too. Yeah. Okay. So do you want to take us through some wrap-up stuff? Yes, I guess that's my job. Okay, so uh, if you want to make fun of the fact that I can't work subtitles or talk to us about why you think we missed the mark on the genius that is Howl's Moving Castle, you can find us on the Twitters, hashtag HKHSpod. That gets both of us. Joe, if they want to just yell at you personally this week, how would they do that? Why are they always yelling? <laughs> <laughs> I can be reached at B stole my remote and that's the letter B. And I'm Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And if you want to send us something a little bit longer, you know, we love your feedback. Uh, we love your feedback when you disagree with us. So sure. if you disagree with us this week, email us at hkhspod at gmail.com. Next week, I'm very excited slash I'm trepidatious. Yes. So we're tackling Lori Hall Sanderson's speak next yep. week. We've been teasing this forever, and people we have, a, have actively been requesting it, so we are yes. going to do it. We're going to do it, and it's a book that I love, but it's a book that is emotionally a lot. So I know that some of our listeners try to read along with us, and I would like to caution you to yes. take care of yourself. It is a book about rape and the aftermath of rape, so please be aware of that mm -hmm. when you pick it up. Yeah. Uh, I've never watched the film version. I'm excited to. With our girl, Kristen Stewart. Yeah, who apparently a lot of people say this is her best role ever. Hmm. So this should be interesting. It's her, one of her earliest roles, and it's quite a small independent film, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I'm actually very excited. I'm a huge Kay Stewart. I'm a big Stan. Kirsten Stewart fan. I mm -hmm. think that she's incredibly underrated, and I think a lot of people, like Robert Pattinson, misjudge her solely based on the Twilight films, which are akin to Star Wars films and are not about performance. It's also interesting, too, when you think about the personas of Kestu and Arpats, because like Robert Patterson got away with being sort of sullen and kind of a complete arse mm -hmm. through the press junkets for the Twilight films. And everybody sure. thought that was charming and funny. But when Kristen Stewart was sullen during the press junkets for Twilight, all we got were long things about how hard she was to work with and what a miserable person she is. Yep. I can't imagine that that's gendered. No, of course <laughs> not. What are you talking about? And just so folks are aware, I'm also going to bring in a little bit of chat about the graphic novel adaptation of Speak next week. And Laurie Hulse Anderson followed up Speak yes. about 15 years later, I think, with her own personal memoir, which I've talked about on the show before. So we'll make some reference to that. So there's going to be a lot going on next week and a lot of it fairly um, it's heavy. heavy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So brace yourself. I think we're going to have some good conversation. And maybe we'll even have some help to get through it. Okay. Yeah. Which I appreciate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so until next time, uh, I'll see y'all on the page. And I will see you on the screen. <laughs>